Uh, thank you for your patience, and thank you for coming. And I just wanted to introduce myself, give a quick spiel before we launch into uh, the topic. But my name is Vanessa Richardson, and I am, I've got the lofty title of Executive Director of California Groundbreakers. And it's a civic engagement organization. We're gearing up to be a 501c3. And I was just mentioning here to the panel that um, uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, but that's basically the model. It's, they put on events all the time and all types of topics from art to architecture to the economy to uh, education, but they pull all these great panelists together and I think it's time for Sacramento to have something similar to that. We've had about, I think, eight events or so since last June. Uh, and we've had them all over the place. We had one at Beatnik Studios in downtown. We've had a couple at the barn in West Sacramento, right on the river, uh, like on waterfront development, craft beer. We've had one, a few at Clara, uh, the, where the Sac Ballet has their uh, new home, or, or the rehearsal studio, and they have a lovely auditorium. So actually, the first event we had in this series that I'm calling California's Crazy Housing Market was there. This is part two. And the first one was on basically the, just the general hot real estate market, what makes it so crazy if you are looking to buy a house, if you're looking to rent a house. And um, that's, all these events are on podcasts, by the way. So if you, I, I'm just for those of you who are new, we do these great events, but then they're recorded for podcasts, by the way. So you uh, can catch up. This is part two. This is on affordable housing. Uh, the part three is going to be here as well. Same, well, actually, next Monday, but we're going to move it a little later to 6.30 because of, you know, traffic on 50 and 80 can, can conflict with that. But that's going to be on gentrification. And I know that term is like gentrification, but what that means and how, that, how neighborhoods change with old and new coming in together. And then the last one is going to be on April 3rd, another Monday, in Old Sac at Graziano's. That's going to be on CEQA reform. So that stands for California Environmental Quality Act. Uh, a lot of you who are in real estate and real estate development know that term and probably hate it. But I, I, I as a new homeowner, have learned that CEQA really affects uh, how much houses cost, where they're built, where they're not built, how long it takes. So, uh, and also, should it be reformed? Who wants to reform it? What does that mean? So it's kind of the policy wonky thing, but very relevant and very important to know about. So that's April 5th. Um, I want to, let's see. So that's the next event coming up. There will be more. There's a website. There's a Facebook page. I do have a sign-up page out there. I We do the... Um, MailChimp e-newsletter, so there are ways for me to let you know what's going on. But the goal is to have a few of these uh, a month, regularly, uh, twice a month, or maybe more, maybe less, depending on how I can, how many panelists I can get together. But I do want to say thank you guys very much for coming, and thank you. I also want to give some special thanks to a few people who are helping me with this event. First and foremost, Barbara Range, who owns this lovely Brick House Gallery. She's in the back. Uh, she's been, thank you, Barbara. <laughs> really, really appreciate it. And we're going to be back here next Monday for the event here as well. I also want to thank, and they're in the back, Purple Pig Eats. They're our pop-up caterer. They're very jazzed about cooking. They have great stuff. So they probably can't hear me, but... Um, we're gonna, the goal is to have food and drink for you so that you don't have to get a smoothie or eat a big lunch before you come. There will be food and drink. Also thanks to Roostaller, 
uh, who's setting up the beer. They have been a big longtime supporter. And then last but not least, I have a few advisory board members here who helped me out with Groundbreaker events. Uh, Tiffany Sharp, who's in the audience. Uh, Jonna Phillips, who's been serving you wine and water. Um, and then Caleb Clark, who's our great audio man. He's going to be recording the podcast. So we're going to get started. Basically, the format is you see a mic up here. Uh, that is where we're going to have audience questions after I ask questions of the panelists. It's going to be about 45 minutes maybe 60, I'm gonna gauge the look on your face and see how, how tired you are on a Monday. There's a lot to cover, I know I won't get to ask all my questions, but you probably have a lot of questions too. So I'll let you know um, half an hour more or less for um, you to come up and ask questions. I just wanna um, say, if you can, it depends on of course the lineup, but I try to be, you know, be succinct, uh, be respectful of other people who are in line, but just try to get as much information as we can. Um, and also, I should let you know, panelists especially, we have a couple of students here from Sac State who are taking this, who are coming here this, for this event. I have to sign off their form for their, their professor to know that they took this uh, event for their government class. So just, you are going to be educating um, people uh, not just the audience, but just keep in mind, this is for credit. So, um, so anyway. And are they tested on this afterwards? I'm gonna test them. I'm gonna test them to make sure that they listened and that I can sign their paper. So I, I, never, I never introduce the panelists because I feel that you all are, you know yourself best. So I always like to start on my left and ask each panelist to obviously introduce themselves, give their name, where they work, a briefly, brief description about what they do because obviously we're gonna go more into that later. And then on a personal note, I always like to know a little bit about each panelist and you know, we can connect with you in some way. Because this whole series is the crazy housing market here in California, how you've been affected, or you know, what made you say, wow, this housing market is crazy, whether you were looking for a rental, buying a home, something in the job, you're like, wow, this is, this is crazy. So just something along those lines that, so we know a little bit about your, your experience personally and professionally with the housing market. Let's start with you. Okay. Oh, you don't, <laughs> you don't have to, but if anyone okay, can't I'm standing hear. anyway because I'm okay. short. So you barely see me this way. Hi, my name is Rachel Isco, and I'm the CEO, Executive Director of Mutual Housing California, and we're a nonprofit uh, developer here in Sacramento. And what that means is we develop and we operate and manage affordable housing for low-income households, seniors, the disabled, formerly homeless, and low-wage workers who can't find a place that fits in their budget uh, in the Sacramento YOLO market. So we're um, building, we, we, we're housing about 3,200 people now in Sacramento and YOLO County. And um, it's a very difficult job right now because the stars are aligning in a way which makes it the most impossible in my almost 30 year uh, career in affordable housing to be able to develop housing. And our waiting lists are longer than they've ever been. The turnover is lower because even when people move jobs, they have less ability to move with their job around the county. So they're staying put and that weighs heavily on families because 
transportation, either a car and gasoline or public transit, it costs a lot of money. So when you have to drive farther for your job, so it's all sort of playing in. But um, so I bought, just this little personal note, I bought my first home here in Sacramento in, uh, I believe it was 1990. And since then I've moved about every 10, eight years. And the first time I had, first couple times I sold my house, it was a little struggle. But this time I haven't even put on the market and I'm, I'm moving and friends want to buy the house, they want to rent the house. One of my friends, she um, bought her, she rented a, a home, uh, an apartment, uh, a year ago, and since then, rents on two-bedroom apartments in her ap apartment complex have gone up $200 a month every four months. So her lease is for a year, so next month she gets her rent increase notice, and she's probably looking at a $600 rent increase. And that's the kind of market we're in, and luckily Jackie has choices, but the people we work with, Moms with kids with a low-wage job, school secretaries working in the in Macy's, uh, working in a doctor's office. Moms on public assistance trying to go back, to, trying to go to school to better their lives and make things stable for their kids. Even two-parent families not making it on two jobs. The disabled seniors, they can't make it in this, in, this, uh, in this market. And it's just, you're here at a really important time for everyone to learn about this. Hi, I am Melinda Coy. I'm with the State Department of Housing and Community Development. I'm a housing policy specialist, which means nothing to any of you, but um, what I do is I have expertise in land use and also uh, work a lot with vulnerable populations, so farm workers, seniors, persons with disabilities, persons experiencing homelessness, tribal populations, to really look at the housing needs across the state of California and try to come up with policies and solutions that would be able to kind of help move California in the right direction um, in terms of our housing supply. I mean, the the I'm in the data and numbers and research field and, the, and everything that's out there is just staggering, you know. Um, even when people have assistance, they still can't afford it, you know. Even um, you know, I have friends who live in the Bay Area, and they're doubling, tripling, quadrupling up. Um, they're gone to places to look for some place to rent, and it's basically somebody's kitchen. Um, you know, it's just it's just nuts. Um, and you know, on in my job, I get a lot of phone calls. Um, a lot of people, you know, call us thinking that, you know, hey, maybe they know where I can have a place to live. And I, there are just so many heartbreaking stories of people who call me and say, you know, I, I'm about ready to lose my place. I can't afford it anymore. Where do I go? What do I do? My mom is, um, you know, she has dementia and there's no place for me to to. to have her stay, you know, I, I, she needs assistance, you know. Uh, so these are heart, heartbreaking stories, and a lot of times I feel v extraordinarily useless because I can't really help them in the way that I wish we could here in California. So we are, you know, looking at um, just, 
you know, across the board from folks who are in extremely low income and who are experiencing homelessness, which is on the rise in California, all the way up to middle income folks who, um, you know, just can't, you know, they don't qualify for the low income stuff, but the market rate stuff is just way out of their price range. So that's kind of what I deal with on a daily basis. Hi, my name, my name is Sonia Trous. Um, thank you so much for having me. I'm up from San Francisco. Um, I founded the San Francisco Bay Area Renters Federation uh, like about two and a half years ago. At the time I was working um, as a high school math teacher and I'm in the same kind of thing that you're talking about. Um, it seemed like everyone I knew was, was struggling to find housing and we were all, you know, like sort of, I considered myself middle income. I mean, as a high school math teacher, I was making $30,000 a year, which for Philadelphia, where I came from, was like fine, middle, I don't know. But in, you know, here it's much, in the Bay Area, that's, that's very low income actually. Um, and it was so strange to me because, and to my friends, we were complaining to each other all the time that in the midst of this shortage, it seemed like there were people organizing to stop uh, housing, even though we were in a housing shortage. And my understanding of shortages was that you need to make more of the thing that you're short on. But every time somebody tried to build a new apartment building, you know, and tear down some disused um, uh, warehouses or something, there was always a gang of people there with a million different reasons, usually parking and traffic at the top, or maybe I'm using this lot as a dog run, or something that seemed really, really uninteresting and um, and inconsequential compared to the, the need for housing. So I initially described my group as crazy people for development. And it was amazing that there were a lot of people that were really into it because I wasn't the only one that was just frustrated. Um, we, were, I, we called ourselves the increased capacity arm of the anti-displacement movement because a lot of the renters groups that already are very successful in San Francisco are dealing with half of the puzzle. You know, they're, they're about controlling prices, which is good, but you can fix rents, and if you have a shortage, you still have a shortage, you know? So you still, at some point, you have to build more. Um, and it turned out to go great. That was two and a half years ago. We were able to found a nonprofit, uh, California Renters Legal Advocacy and Education Fund. I did not make up that name, um, but I did make up SF Barf. Um, and that, it, that, um, we, we enforce state housing law, in particular, the Housing Accountability Act, which I think later we'll talk more about. Um, so it's very exciting and satisfying to be able to enforce some state laws, and we'll hear more about it later. Thank you. Good evening, I'm Daryl Rutherford. I'm the executive director of the Sacramento Housing Alliance. We're the local affordable housing advocacy policy organization made up of a number of members from uh, just individual community residents who are concerned with the affordability crisis as well as organizations uh, who are either developing affordable homes or are associated with that whether or not they're providing services and um, you know other things to, to lower lower income populations. 
Uh, we've been around for uh, about 27 years. What are we at? 28 years now. Um, gone through a number of uh, ups and downs, but it's always been one of the most influential affordable housing organizations throughout the region, making sure we have progressive policies in place uh, to make sure that lower income individuals have an affordable home uh, to go go to bed to every night. Um, you know. For me, uh, I've experienced the affordability crisis here in Sacramento or throughout California in a number of ways. Uh, one of the things that drove us here to, to the Sacramento region was uh, I was directing an after-school program in Sunnyvale. Um, back in the early 2000s, my wife and I both, she was a teacher, uh, finishing up her teaching credential. I was directing an affordable or after-school program. And it was just really challenging for us at the time. This was during the dot-com boom. Um, and I figured, goodness gracious, we've got to do something else. And so I wound up at Davis to get my uh, uh, master's degree in community development. And even during that time, we were finding it pretty challenging there in the city of Davis to, to just live and, and make ends meet. Rents were uh, wild, uh, out of control, and they're just getting worse there. Um, and over the years, I, I've spent a number of times, you know, both at, uh, as an affordable housing advocate and just community developer in, in general, uh, but drove me to the Housing Alliance is that, you know, the mission of the Housing Alliance is so pure and, and good for our communities that being able to be part of an organization that fights the good fight, that's standing up there, you know, Presenting a voice to those that just don't, aren't normally heard, it really is something that's needed and something I, I greatly appreciate and I'm honored to be sitting in the position tonight. And I really look forward to engaging in conversation with all of you tonight about the affordability crisis, not just from you know a homeowner uh, perspective, but those who are working that are struggling to make ends meet, that are the fabric of our community. We need to really make sure that the programs and policies and funding is in place so that everybody can have an affordable home uh, to go to bed to at night. So looking forward to tonight. Hi everyone, I'm Daniel Weisfield uh, with McKinsey and Company. It's really a pleasure to be here with you tonight. So on a personal note, my family immigrated to the US when my mom was 12. She came with her parents, classic immigrant story, you know, a few dollars in the pocket, not much else. Came from a chicken farm. And my grandfather was able to buy a home. He was able to send his kids to college. He was able to invest in a few other um, multifamily properties, providing housing for other people, uh, building wealth and opportunity for his family. And here I am sitting with you today, you know, the product of that story. Um, at McKinsey, I work as a strategy consultant, consulting a lot of companies on a variety of issues. A lot of our work is for-profit. We also have a nonprofit think tank called the McKinsey Global Institute. I'm proud to say we're ranked the world's number one private sector think tank, and we do research on the issues that we think are most important for business and society. And a few months back, we decided, let's study housing in California. That is a pressing, compelling issue. We've worked on housing and urbanization issues globally. We'd heard it was really bad in California. We wanted to find out how bad. We did original research. 
scoured a lot of data, did a ton of interviews, did a very systematic economic analysis, and the answer is it's really bad. <laughs> Worse than, you know, London and Singapore and Tokyo and the places you think of as being, you know, the worst places for housing prices globally, I think we're in a worse spot in California. That's the hole we need to, to dig out of. Um, just on a quick personal note, I want to tell you a nimbyism story. I live in West Oakland. My neighbors are a lot of African-American families who owned homes in my neighborhood for a long time. Some newcomers like me, some people in public housing, and a lot of people who do not have homes. I was speaking with one of my neighbors who doesn't have a home. His name is Greg, he's uh, an army veteran. And he actually lives in a tiny house on wheels. There's a, there's, there are a few of these in West Oakland, small houses on wheels. And I was asking about the neighborhood and kind of how these people live in tiny houses, take care of each other. And he said, you know, normally we get along pretty well, but it's, it's these newcomers who are showing up in tents that make things really hard. So, so think about that, right? Nimbyism is even a problem among people who do not have homes. I think there's something very instinctive and tribal about nimbyism, and I think it's something we really need to dig into if we're gonna solve the housing problem here. Wow. <laughs> I don't know how I follow that up. Um, I'll try. Uh, my name's Todd Leone. I'm the development director for a public agency called CADA, and that stands for the Capital Area Development Authority. And we are a joint powers agency uh, created by the city of Sacramento and the state of California. And our job is to develop housing and neighborhood commercial uh, in and around a 60 block area south of Capitol Park, roughly from 7th Street to 19th Street, from N Street down to S Street. And so over the last 40 years, we've uh, been building on mostly state-owned properties uh, in that area. And over those 40 years, we've turned the neighborhood around quite well, I think. Um, if you're familiar with a number of the projects that have been built on 16th Street as you head into downtown Midtown, uh, the R Street corridor as well, we've had a big hand in infrastructure improvements and uh, one of the housing projects, the biggest housing project on R Street so far, which is the Warehouse Artist Lofts, which is a uh, mixed-use, mixed-income project there. Um, so my job as development director is to uh, help build more housing, um, improve the neighborhood, and any way we can, um, including infrastructure improvements or helping out with small businesses. Um, and uh, on my personal note, uh, I'm, I've been a homeowner for about 10, 12 years, bought our house about six months before the big crash in the housing market and the recession. So our house was automatically underwater the first year we had our house. Um, we wanted to grow our family and we were in a 2-1 and we were looking for just one more bedroom. Um, and we waited very patiently uh, for the Great Recession and things to turn around. And uh, by the time we were ready to save up enough money to move into the next step, uh, next house, uh, of course, this housing market took off and we couldn't afford our next jump in our own neighborhood, which we wanted to stay into. Uh, so we big borrowed and stealed from our family members and uh, what money we could cobble together and we just added on to our house. That was our option and I'm glad we did. Um, uh, the housing market actually benefited us because we found out our house was worth way more than we thought uh, because of all of the craziness in the housing market. So, um, but uh, that's my personal story. But you know, as a professional, um, we we manage 750 apartment units in our area as well, and 
we get people coming into our office with all kinds of crazy stories. The $600 rent increase was those. That's the highest I've heard so far. Uh, we had a gentleman just today in our office talk about a $400 rent increase, and he was in our office looking for housing because he'd been priced out of his apartment. Um, the other crazy one is bidding wars for apartment apartments where you have people saying, well, I want to rent your apartment. Well, I've, the landlord said, I've already rent, I'm looking at somebody I'm already rented. Well, how much is he paying? Because I'll pay $200 a month more. Um, so you have stories like that that are happening in around at least the downtown area where we see most of our um, uh, you know, folks coming in trying to rent, rent apartments who are within the midtown, downtown area. So I look forward to the rest of our discussion. Yeah, it's going to be quite a discussion. Um, before I forget, I just wanted to say, uh, please don't feel shy if you would like to have more food or drink. I don't mean to push on it on you, but don't feel like you're blocked off if you'd like to go back, because you're not being recorded on video, just audio. And uh, that's actually my hint. If anyone can get me a glass of Pinot, um, it is, <laughs> thank you to, oh, John, hey, okay, hey, bartender, can I have a glass of Pinot, please, on the house? Thank you very much. So uh, I don't want to be the only one. Um, someone asked me, what's the audience for these events? And, and I was, I, I thought I should have just said, well, people like me who are pretty smart but don't know a lot about a lot of stuff like what goes into uh, the affordable housing, how housing works or, you know, a proposition passes. So I think it's, um, I'd like, I wanted to know more about, I hear so much about affordable housing, but what does that mean? How is it decided? How does the state Disregulated. How does the city and county work with the state? Uh, so for this uh, top for this topic, I I really try to do as much research as I could, but also try not to get into the weeds too much because there's so much. But obviously, thank you so much, Jonna. Um, I did see the report that Daniel did with the McKinsey Global Institute. Uh, I read up, you know, on CATA Affordable Housing Alliance Mutual. So I did my research, but there's just so much. But I wanted to uh, learn, I guess, along with the rest of you who are with me, like, what is affordable housing? I know I'm affected by it as a former renter, a new homeowner, you know, looking for homes, uh, and then just how this is going to affect the state. So my first question is for you, Melissa, about, you know, I think for many, in many ways, the state starts up here, and then it kind of goes down to region, county, city. Uh, so... I wanted to know, in layman's terms, how it works for housing planning across the state. What does your agency do? How does it go down to the local level? Um, and I think I was going to ask what works about that process now, what does it? That might be too much. But just an overview of how the state, in its all its government roles, looks at housing and how it should be planned and constructed and regulated. All right, I would love to answer that question. That's what I do. Um, so the first thing is that state and local governments lay the groundwork for increasing the supply of affordable homes through specific tools, requirements, incentives, and regulations. Um, in California, the local governments have primary control over land use and housing-related decisions and can act uh, policies which either encourage or discourage housing construction. Um, and then the private market then develops the housing guided by this groundwork. I think that's really a very important thing because, uh, because California recognizes that housing is a private and public partnership. 
Um, it is very market driven. Um, and jurisdictions, cities and counties, they need to plan for the housing. Um, and the state, in our role, uh, the legislature has rules and, and laws that kind of govern the parameters around, around that planning. So, you know, how fast uh, are they required to approve planning or approve new projects, things like that. And then also, one of our big roles is to assess how many new units are needed to accommodate growth over a specific period of time. So that's what you hear of the RENA process or the Regional Housing Needs Allocation process. And that's a really critical process because um, that number goes down to a regional level and then it gets assigned from that regional level to uh, all the local jurisdictions, all the local governments, and then they have to make sure they have enough sites and lay the groundwork for that development to occur. Um, one of the, I, I mean, and I was thinking about the question, the second part of that question, you know, what works in this process and what, what doesn't work. Um, so. I think the, you know, that process that I just kind of laid out where, you know, state uh, cities are required to look at housing and plan for it is actually pretty good. Um, we have m the majority of cities in California are in compliance with that state law, and it means that they're having those conversations, and having the conversations are the first step. The problem is in the implementation of those plans. Um, somebody mentioned enforcement of existing housing laws. Um, you know, there's community resistance as soon as you get um, a project in place. There's even resistance to this kind of this top-down state model where, you know, there's these requirements and these laws on the books, and there's community and there's you know resistance from the local level about what the state tells them to do. Um, and then even cities and jurisdictions who are doing all the right things, and there's a lot of them out there. They're setting the table, they're making it right, you know, good for development to occur. There's a lack of developers to even go in and, and actually build that. And there's a lot of reasons for that, um, especially in the rural areas, in the North State, qualified people who know what they're doing is a real problem. But we've heard going around, we've just released a statewide housing, the draft statewide housing assessment, which kind of lays out what is the overall need in California, which is 1.8 million new homes over the next 10 years. Um, but from this, we, we, we learned it's just too expensive to build here. Um, the, the land costs are high. Construction costs are high. The way we fund services is through fees, which gets put on the back of new development, which again then relates it to make it high. When you mean services, what type of services? Library, fire, okay. police, infrastructure, all of those things that we as a community benefit from that we expect our local governments to take care of, all get funded through new development fees. So the new guys are subsidizing the people who are already there. And that's mostly because of Proposition 13. Um, so, um, so all of these things equate to, unless a unit is subsidized with some sort of tax credit or some other kind of subsidy me mechanism, or it's super luxury, you know, with the granite countertops, 
developers can't make it pencil. And so, you know, it's a local issue, it's a state issue, and it's a market issue. And unless we address all of these issues, we're not going to move forward. And I think that's what you said, that last sentence is going to be what a lot of you <laughs> keep saying as we go forward. Um, so I, I'm going to ask a question of each panelist. And the next one is, is for the developers. Um, I'm going to start with Todd, because I know Kata does development. And I, one, one project that I hear so much about is the warehouse artist lofts, which seems to me like a great example of affordable housing, the target market artists, the creative economy, and uh, it's a beautiful building and it seemed to work really well. Uh, another one that doesn't seem to have worked, I was reading in the uh, newspaper, you were going to be working with the Westminster Presbyterian Church in Midtown and the project didn't pencil, I guess. Um, there were maybe disagreements on both sides and so that one went out. So I wanted to see, in terms of your role in housing development, um, you know, what makes one project so successful? What, what makes another project not work? Um, what are the factors that go into success versus this isn't going to pencil, we're going to have to bow out? Well, I'll, I'll stick with the examples that you give from, I mean, land, land is the first and foremost hardest part in an infill development. You know, just getting the land is tough. Um, it, Property owners always want more money than you're willing to pay or want to pay. They always have this grand idea about how much their property is worth. And so agreeing on a price is always is tough. Uh, we just closed on a property last week that we plan to build as a mixed-use, mixed-income project. Um, and in, it was In Midtown? or uh, Yeah, right off the R Street corridor. Um, and it's a half-block uh, property. And... Uh, you know, it's tough negotiating. You know, we had one idea of what the property was worth, and the developer had another, but you know, we were able to come to an agreement. Um, there were other things involved, like uh, toxics on the site, and 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 having to to deal with that before we purchased the property. Um, for the wall, you know, that that <laughs> it's a great project. It's a fantastic project. Um, you know, 116 units um, that artists get to live in, 75% of which are affordable. Uh, to 60, 50, 40, and 30 percent um, or below the area median income. But that project took 15 years to develop. <laughs> uh, we had been trying to work on that project since 1997. Um, and we went through uh, two developers, uh, probably four different concepts, and it came down to what you're saying, you know, just couldn't make the project pencil, uh, and then tried all kinds of different ways to finance the project and just couldn't make it work and so uh, the last developer threw up his hands and said we need subsidy to make this work and the only way you're going to get deep subsidies on a project like this is to make it affordable and we said great and uh, fortunately, fortunately enough they found a great developer um, partner that we are happy to work with CFY development um, to make that project come together um, and it was just a lot of uh, waiting and then all of a sudden everything all the stars just aligned so timing is really important too. Uh, Westminster didn't come together because we couldn't figure out, um, we had a great win on our side. We thought we had proposed something that the Presbyterian Church could, could, could get on board with, but it wasn't a big enough win for them. They were losing too much, they thought, between parking, not getting enough income back on the property because we were going to lease the property back from them and provide parking for their, for their church activities. Um, we just couldn't, we couldn't make it work for them. Um, but 
you know, um, I think you, you hit it um, correctly uh, with the last comment, which was, in, at least in the midtown downtown area, uh, you know, you either are going to get affordable housing product or you're going to get luxury product because the rents now are high enough, you can get the rents now that make non-subsidized projects work. Uh, there hasn't been really technically one that hasn't or that has been built in downtown in probably 20, 30 years, maybe. And there's just now, in the process of being built right now, probably about 400, well, 300 units of housing that are being proposed or being built right now that are finally to the point where there was no subsidy involved at all. And that's the, the Ice Blocks project, about 160 units, and then um, SKK Groupies pro apartment projects that they're building. Those are the first projects in downtown that have, haven't had a subsidy. So, um, the, the, the market is very important in those, and even then, we can't find projects that pencil for the middle income. Uh, it's very tough. And, and that's, it, it runs the whole thing with market. It's labor, it's cost of land, uh, financing, all of it plays into the cost of a project. So the, not the opposite, but there's affordable housing, then there's market rate housing, right? That's, uh, I guess, the other term, and then luxury. Okay. And then, Rachel, for mutual housing, uh, I took a look at your website and I saw the housing that you do and the innovations that are made and the care that goes into it. And I put this on the Facebook page, by the way. You do tours every month scheduled and then you do scheduled tours that people want to go see what affordable housing can be and, and break the mold of what people think affordable housing is. So what is the vision for affordable housing? And you know, in a perfect world, you know, what, what do you do with mutual housing that you want to see implemented uh, and could be used as a model uh, for other affordable housing statewide in your, in your view? Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, when people say affordable housing, kind of what, what conjures, what's the image that you have right, in your brain. It's not good, right? Right, um, so we used to use the word, the projects, right? People use the projects and still, and then so then they started using low-income housing, but the projects kept coming up, like Cabrini Green, those long, those big, ugly projects where people are living in each other, there's a lot of crime. Oh, in New York? And then, uh, in Chicago, Chicago. yeah. And, um, and then, so then we started calling it affordable housing. We still can't kick that image, but I'm gonna stand up, because I can't see the people in the back. But So the new breed of affordable housing has been around for um, 30, years as long as I've been in the business and it's um, you know we start building it and people come up and want to buy those condos so it's really nice product and I encourage you to go to our website mutualhousing.com or even Cada what is Cada.net and um, see our newest um, pardon oh Kedaorg.net. Okay. Um, and look at the new housing. I mean, it's beautiful, it's well designed, it's safe, and it is innovative, and it's very green and sustainable. And the idea is, um, you know, you work hard, you deserve good housing, and you deserve healthy housing. And in fact, if you have really unhealthy jobs, like we just built housing. Um, uh, just over a year ago in Woodland for agricultural workers and their families. That, those are some of the worst and most toxic and unsafe jobs in our country. And most farm workers are relegated to the worst, most unsafe, unhealthy housing. So we took it upon ourselves to build the safest housing and the most sustainable housing. So it was the first, so we built the first uh, 
certified zero net energy rental housing in the nation over in Woodland. We give tours a lot. Just go on our website, sign up a tour for mutual housing um, at Spring Lake. And it's beautiful, wonderful housing that fits in this neighborhood of, you know, 350, dollars $500,000 homes. And people with hard jobs, raising families, and jobs we all depend on to put food on our table, they deserve that, right? And the other thing is, there's this thing called the green divide in our country, right? And it's the people who have homes or have really nice luxury apartment get all the benefits of the green um, revolution, right? We get solar, we get no VOC paint, we get uh, you know this great green recycled, um, uh, you know, just uh, carpets that have no VOCs or linoleum, natural products, but low-income people don't get that, and they have the most unhealthy lives because of where they live and the jobs they have. Well, they deserve that. So we believe we should um, help close the green divide, get low-income people the benefits of the green revolution through the housing they live in, and so that's why we try to build uh, green housing, but we also renovate housing. So sometimes neighborhood associations or elected officials come to us and say there's this horrible, decrepit apartment complex in our neighborhood and we're worried about the people who live there. It's a big downer for the neighborhood, bringing property values down. Can you do something? And so we go in, we try to buy it, and we renovate it, and we use a lot of sustainability measures, uh, green renovation to really make those apartments healthy for the residents. So the, the idea is, is that housing, we think housing is a human right. We all need a roof over our head. Kids do better in school, right? When they know where they're gonna live, you know, day after day, year after year, when they have enough space, when there's a quiet space, when a lot of low-income people are over, living in overcrowded conditions. So people need space. So we build two, three, four, even five-bedroom apartments for larger families that have extended other generations, like grandmas living with them and um, young families that are living with mom and having their children and just starting out in the workforce. So that's, that's really important. But the vision of mutual Mutual housing is that people also, renters also should have the ability to feel a lot of pride in where they live and in their neighborhoods. So we have this vision in our minds, this idea that renters don't care about their neighborhoods, they're transitory, they don't care about their housing. In a lot of respects, sometimes resident renters don't because landlords treat them so poorly, right? They're ready to move because the landlord doesn't, you know, fix up the apartment, there's leaks, they don't, so you don't have the feeling like this is the place you wanna live, but you know, when given the ability to live in a really nice place, renters thrive and they take pride. And we even give financial information to the residents living in our house so they can make choices, you know, if kids are, you know, playing and digging up the, Sprinklers, so you know, like we have to change sprinklers a lot. Will the residents will get involved in more after-school programs and providing those to more engaging activities or arts programs? So residents identify the programs they want in their communities um, and develop leadership skills through that. So. That's, um, that's kind of our brand at affordable housing, and we really encourage you to go on a tour because it really just changes your whole paradigm about how you look at affordable housing. And where does the funding come to build? Uh-huh. So that's a big problem now is funding. So um, the funding comes from uh, 
private foundations. It comes from uh, state money. So when you pay taxes, some of those taxes go into affordable housing um, or, you, um, or they're bond funded. So right now we don't have any of that. So there hasn't been a bond measure on the ballot for many years to provide bond funding for affordable housing at the state level. Um, and this, the governor has not signed legislation that's gone through the legislature to create a permanent source of affordable house, for affordable housing through other kinds of fees. So we're kind of at a standstill now with state money. We, the other big source is this um, source called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, where corporations like utility companies, insurance companies, bank, uh, banks invest in the development of affordable housing, and then they get a tax credit, so a credit off their large income tax liability. But we're at a standstill now with that because President Trump um, is saying taxes for the wealthy and corporations are going to be lowered. So that means that these corporations saying, well, I don't want to invest that much in affordable housing because it may be worth this much today, but when those tax cuts come, it's going to be worth a lot less, so I don't want to invest in much, and I don't want to, it's an investment that goes in, um, that they get back over 10 years in tax credit. So we're at a big standstill now where corporations don't want to invest in the tax credit. So it's, while the need is at its greatest because of rent increases are historically just higher than they've ever been, the funding for, subs for affordable housing is at the, at the worst I've seen it in my career. Um, and uh, I think that that's kind of the, that's the problem we're into right now, so. And then for Daryl, uh, a question, a big topic now in Sacramento, we have a new mayor and he is uh, talking a lot about the homeless issue and providing housing for them. And there is, uh, if I remember correctly, there are a lot of people in line already for um, the housing vouchers. Um, and then we want to move homeless to the top of the list or, or many of them. So how can we provide funding for both? Now, I know the Sacramento Housing Alliance is involved in those efforts, and has been, but I was wondering what the status is in terms of, it made a lot of news, and now what now that we've, you know, that's the plan, how is that plan moving along in terms of affordable housing for low income and homeless? Yeah, and um, I'm gonna get to that point, but I hope folks can just bear with me just for a second. When you are talking to your friends and coworkers and family, and let's say you're out to dinner, you're out for a drink, or you're getting ready to clock out on the day, how many of you say, I'm going to my housing unit tonight? Yeah, right, nobody. What do you say? I'm gonna go home. And what we're talking about here is home. You know, we have, as a society, have put affordable housing into this certain kind of, you know, uh, stigma. We've created a stigma about it, but really what we're talking about is an affordable home, an affordable place to live, a roof over your head. And it's really challenging for folks to think about it in, in these terms. And when we are, you know, uh, to help kind of put it into context, when we talk about like a four-person home, you know, where four working or four people are living with this home, you know, those who qualify for that type of assistance, can anyone hazard a guess as to like a yearly income for that household would need to earn to qualify, you know, as a low income household? I'm sorry? 30? I think somebody 30? 30. 
for four people, four-person household, whether it's two working adults and two kids. Well, low income, like 60% AMI? Uh, maybe 80%, that's the actual definition, so let's... Of, of median income? Of the 80% of the area median income. Sacramento AMI? Yeah. Well, you guys are on your own, I won't guess. All right, so we're, we're talking about a household that earns $60,900. They actually qualify as low income, okay? The Housing Alliance, we go a little bit step further. Our work is mostly focused on those that are at 50% of the area median income. So we're talking about folks who are earning, you know, a household of four at $38,000 or so a year. We're talking about people who are working, that are contributing, that are, you know, really providing, um, you know, a lot of benefits to our local economy. And so really, I mean, part of our mission is to demystify this whole myth about what we're talking about when we're talking about an affordable home, an affordable place to live. Yeah, there are a lot of folks out there who, for one reason or another, whether they're elderly, they're living on a fixed income, they're dealing with mental or physical health issues um, that are, you know, keeping them at a lower income level. Um, and that's really where our focus is, is to make sure that those individuals have a place to call home every night. Um, so in doing all of that, we do a lot of like kind of what Rachel does is, you know, these affordable uh, tours to go look around town to what an affordable home really looks like. We do an affordable uh, bus tour every year where we drive around, Rachel's one of our MCs and a couple of other folks are, and we pull up into uh, outside of a development and we just kind of say, okay, who here in the bus can point out where the affordable homes are in this neighborhood? And more times than not, they can't. Because again, you're talking about some really beautiful kind of state-of-the-art developments that are going on here. So again, it, it's kind of changing the mindset here as to what we're really talking about. Some of the you know, folks that are having the hardest time finding an affordable place to live and that are some of the, you know, hidden people that are experiencing homelessness are, you know, single moms and children who are living in their cars, who are couch surfing, you know, who can't necessarily qualify for the public housing assistance that are available. Because back in the day, the policies that were in place were kind of you know, discriminatory in a sense. They didn't really think about the, those folks who are experiencing homelessness. Um, who could be a working part of our community? Who could be a family um, and could benefit from having an affordable place to call home every night? So what the mayor is actually proposing is that we rethink these preferences on the public housing wait list, the, uh, you know, the voucher programs, what's formerly known as Section 8, things like that, to ensure that the people who do not have a place to call home tonight can actually benefit from some of the opportunities that come forward through our, our public agencies. Um, right now, if you are someone that are, that's experiencing homelessness and you are not rent burdened, which means you're not spending more than 30 or 50% of your income on rent, you can't move up that wait list. You know, if you're living in your car, if you're couch surfing, you can't put on paper that you have rent, that you are rent burdened. And so you don't move up that list. All the mayor is asking is for us to rethink this preference. 
You know, how can we make sure that these folks, that the single moms with children who um, aren't paying rent right now because they can't afford to find a place to rent, can still benefit from our public housing and our, our, our voucher issue. So uh, there's a huge effort to, to kind of think about how we you know, reprioritize these lists that are out there. Things that Rachel is talking about. We're talking about seven-year wait lists on our public housing wait lists. I mean, seven years someone gets on, and before you even can qualify, it takes you that long to move up the list. So, Daryl, where does that stand right now? I mean, I, we the yeah. mayor made a statement, but what's what are the next steps? I guess to quickly. Well, um, I'm, I'm hoping when I check my email after we leave here that we're going to have a plan from the Sacramento Housing Redevelopment Agency that's really um, kind of developing a strategy how to address this issue because on Wednesday night their commission is going to be looking at this plan and next week at both the county and at the city they're going to be hearing recommendations from the housing redevelopment agency here locally as to what it is that they think needs to happen in order to address this issue in a comprehensive way and so really right now is a great time for folks to be engaged in this discussion and to let your voice be heard to make sure that everybody here in the Sacramento area has an affordable place to call home regardless of your stature in life. The other issue is when it comes down to funding. Folks like Mutual Housing do a fabulous job, but with the loss of so much funding locally, with the loss of redevelopment, with the uh, cutbacks at the state level, and the cutbacks at our federal level, there are less dollars available to build affordable homes. And so at the Housing Alliance, we've made it uh, really, you know, part of our mission over the next couple of years to help find new sources of funding so that we can have more uh, affordable homes built. Um, because it has to take, we have to take a comprehensive approach about this. We have to address the homelessness issue and we have to still make sure that there's funding and policies and programs in place so that we can build and create more affordable homes within our region. And Mel Melinda quickly wanted to say something about that. Yeah, I, um, I wanted to tag on to what Daryl was saying um, in that taking a step back, you know, it's really important that everybody has an affordable place to live, right? That's, that's kind of a tenant that we all here on, our, on the panel really believe in. But, but why? Um, you know, a lot of things that we hear as we go through is, well, you know, you just need to work harder. You just need to, you know, that that it's, you know, that it's this big piece of the pie. And, and if you get something, then I'm going to get less. Um, so the real story here, though, is that housing affects all of our lives. And whether or not people have housing affects our entire society. For example, why is the homeless problem such an issue in California besides housing costs? Well, it raises the it raises how much health costs. So your health care costs go up because of frequent users of people who are exper experiencing homelessness uh, because they don't have a safe place to live. So a lot of research has gone into this and says it actually reduces health costs to make sure people have a stable and healthy place to live. Okay, well that affects society. Well, we wanna make sure that the air we breathe doesn't suck, right? Um, 
well, as people are trying to move out to find more and more cheaper places to live, the transportation goes up. When the transportation goes up, the emissions go up, then we all choke on the emissions. So I think it's really critical that not only do we focus on the people who do need to, to, to have that affordable place to live and the problems we're having here, but it, not having that in California has severe economic and societal costs that affect everybody, whether or not you have a house or not. So two of the panelists, as you probably heard in their intros, are here from the Bay Area, and thank you both for coming. And I thought it was interesting when I came across um, the Sonia uh, and SF Barf, there was an article in the New York Times last April, I guess, about um, her efforts in SF Barf and how she had hired a lawyer to sue the city of Lafayette in the East Bay in terms of how they switch their um, housing development plans around. We were originally gonna have this in last month and I had asked Sonia and she said I can come because actually that day I'm, there's a ruling or there's something in court about that case against Lafayette. We moved it but I wanted to find out because um, I just thought it's interesting you know, the, the individual standing up and speaking out and suing a city um, where that stands and uh, you know, could that serve as a model for future efforts, other people suing. So I just wanted to see what's the status and how that's working for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I wanna say the first thing is, is that I did eventually, I was able to incorporate a nonprofit and hire a lawyer, um, but I wrote the petition initially and anybody can write a petition initially. If I learned one thing from NIMBYs, it's that anyone can file a lawsuit. Like it takes a $500 filing fee or less depending on the lawsuit and I can give you examples of other petitions and you can get it started on your own. Um, so I got that started, I got press, I was able to raise money, I got a real lawyer to finish it up. So that's right, like this initially was gonna be on the 22nd and we were in Martinez, the county seat of Contra Costa County, which is where Lafayette is and we were having our hearing and the judge hasn't told us yet what she's gonna decide. And I'll tell you what the story is. And I'm really excited to talk about this because something that we hadn't, you know, there, there are actually many, many opportunities to build unsubsidized affordable housing. So what does unsubsidized affordable housing look like? Normally what it looks like is an apartment building in a neighborhood that's normally single family homes. And that's what Lafayette is. It's a single family home suburb that's on the BART it's between Walnut Creek and Oakland. And so it is. it has very easy access to a lot of jobs. The school district is good. You know, it's one of these high opportunity areas. It's mostly single family homes. And they had this big plot of land, it's over 10 acres, that was actually zoned for up to 700 apartments. Um, and the developer, um, all, you know, proposed 315 apartments. Well, the neighborhood freaked out, the city, the little city freaked out, because a lot of these single-family suburbs are single-family suburbs for a reason. They believe that something called neighborhood character exists and is real and is important. You know, they believe that their lives will be materially damaged if they live within close proximity of an apartment building, even though everything about else about their lives, their jobs, their relationship with their family is all gonna stay the same. Anyway, um, so the, this, the city was losing it. Uh, four years pass, the, the developer proposed this apartment building in 2011, four years pass, what they get approved is 44 single family homes. Right, that's what we said. Everything you just said, that's what we said. We were outraged. 
Um, but I found out that a law called the Housing Accountability Act exists and is supposed to prohibit exactly this thing. Um, in, in 1982, the state of California passed a law that if somebody proposes something that's perfectly general plan and zoning compliant, then the city actually does not have the discretion to turn it down unless they can show that the proposed housing uh, would be a threat to public health and safety. Now, no city has ever been able to show that any type of housing is a threat to public health and safety, because if they did, then they'd have to tear down all the housing, you know, in their area. It's, it's a crazy idea. So I, you know, I, I really looked for a lawyer to help out with this, but because the developer and the city had made a deal, you know, the developer, basically what happened is like 2013, 2014 happened, and he proposed this development in 2011, which as you might remember was a recession. Um, 2013, 2014, we were climbing out of the recession, and the developer was like, actually, um, you know, between 300 apartments, which are sort of naturally affordable, right? They're just cheaper than, than large single-family homes. Um, and a small number of large single-family homes, he comes out the same. Uh, so the developer sort of made a deal with the city, and we allege that, the, that that deal was illegal because the Housing Accountability Act says that you cannot disapprove or approve conditional on lower density, and their approval was conditional on lower density. Um, so now a year later, our case finally, uh, we, we went before the judge. Um, and I don't, I'm not very optimistic for this, honestly, because the judge kind of couldn't get over that the developer isn't harmed. You know, she kept being, she kept saying like, but the developer is building something and the developer doesn't mind. And our lawyers kept trying to tell her that it's not about the developer, it's about the 700 people that would have lived in these apartments who now not only can't live in these apartments, they can't live in the houses either because the whole point, you know, is they were gonna be middle or lower income. Um, but she just wasn't, she just didn't really buy it. Um, so we're trying again in, so we haven't found out, I could be wrong, uh, but we're trying again in, um, in Berkeley. Berkeley did an epic thing. They, well, I think it's epic. They had three single family homes in a single family neighborhood, right? So you, you're not even, like in Lafayette, sure, the apartments were very different than the single family homes. Okay, that's controversial. Three single family homes, single family neighborhood. The neighbors, again, very against it. A lot of concern that there was gonna be 18 new cars that were gonna be looking for parking on the street. Um, they felt really sure that every single bedroom was gonna have somebody in it who had a car. They couldn't imagine, I guess, that the bedrooms might have children in them, I don't know. Um, and so the city council turned those houses down even though they were zoning general plan compliant. We sued them. The city attorney said, wow, this is indefensible. You're totally right. We're not gonna fight this. And so the city attorney sent it back to the city council where the city council turned the houses down again. And the mayor said, well, let's make some case law. Let's test this law. You know, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of case law about it. So now we have to sue Berkeley. And I was really surprised that this is the hill they decided to die on because it's not a good hill, you know? Um, but yeah, hope this is, we really are, like part of the point of this nonprofit is to, you know, the, the reason this law is rarely enforced is that so far, the state has put it up to the developers uh, to enforce it, but developers are not in the business of raising money to fight lawsuits. You know, if they get disapproved, they walk away. Um, and they also don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. You know, they don't want to get a reputation as litigious when their whole business is going around to cities being like, hey, you like this idea? Let me get a permit. 
Um, and so the, there is a bill by David Chu from San Francisco to put some money aside for the uh, state attorney general to enforce the Housing Accountability Act. I really hope that happens. I don't know, maybe some insiders here can let me know if it seems likely. Um, there's another bill from Bocanegra, who's from Orange County, uh, to make the Housing Accountability Act easier to use. Uh, but definitely, like, we want cities to know that this exists. We want other pro-housing people to know it exists. Um, publish resources to help people learn how to file these suits themselves. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I, I have a question about the, the, the law or the bills that are going through Assembly and Senate. And so I'll ask that after I ask the last individual question for Daniel from McKinsey, because that report that I read, um, I don't even know how I came across it. I think I just did. But I read through all, well, most of the 68 pages. But it was very interesting because there was these suggestions, you know, for solutions. And what caught my eye, I guess, in the summary at least, was the that your team looked at housing hotspots where you see up to 5 million units of housing that could be developed with attractive returns. And, uh, you know, that could... I think how much is this H, the housing and community development was like 1.8 million. You're like, well, we could do 5 million if we build in these housing hotspots and if we build densely um, in these hotspots that have the physical capacity to hold these 5 million units. So I know there's a lot more to our report, but that was interesting to me about briefly, if you could explain, you know, where are these hotspots, how do you do the density um, and, you know, basically, is this something that could be done? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> take uh, that, yeah, take that however you will. So, first of all, I can't believe I have to follow Sonia Trouse. <laughs> um, but on the housing hotspots issue, we set out to analyze the California housing market. And one thing we discovered really quickly is that the problem is undersupply. Okay, California is 49th out of 50 states for housing stock. Okay, we are bottom of the barrel in terms of houses per capita. So we need to build a lot more. So then the next question was, well, do we have room to build houses? Could we put it here? Or is the problem that we ran out of room? So we decided to map the state and figure out if we could wave a magic wand, where would we put the housing? And we said, well, we don't want to just put it anywhere. We don't want to build it in the Mojave Desert um, or you know, in the far northern rural parts of the state. Let's figure out if we can build housing in places that make sense. And we came up with a few types of housing hotspots that we went out and we mapped, literally lot by lot, block by block. And we looked, for example, at vacant urban land that's already zoned for multifamily development. The first thing we looked at. So if you're a state with a housing shortage, that's a no-brainer, right? That's the first place to go build. Uh, and it was the subject of the governor's buy right proposal uh, last year, for those who are familiar with that. Um, and we found out, you know what? There are a lot of those units. There are a lot of units you could build under current zoning um, in places like San Francisco and LA and San Diego and Fresno and Sacramento. Um, we also looked at transit areas, okay? We drew a half mile radius around high frequency transit stops and we made some assumptions around zoning and density, right? We said, these are, these are housing jewels. These are places where it makes sense to build a lot of housing. What happens if we upzone these areas? And there's millions of units of capacity in California. Um, the, the third type I'll mention briefly is what we called green affordable single family. So we recognize, you know, not everyone wants infill. Not everyone wants an urban product. 
Um, some people, especially families or depending on size of life, want a single family home. Um, where do we put that? Well, we, we mapped a few high growth counties that have a lot of land. Sacramento County was one of them. We also looked at Contra Costa County. We looked at San Bernardino County. And we literally screened for big parcels with more than 10 acres, which are economic to develop, which are close to jobs and close to transit, and are close to existing development. So we're not contributing to sprawl. And we found hundreds of thousands of units that we could build single family in those places. So I have a lot of questions, but I know, I bet you guys do too. So I have one question that I'm going to ask. And again, the mic is right here for the middle. If you have a question, please line up. And um, I'm going to intersperse my questions with yours. Don't be shy. Be the groundbreaker that gets up there and asks the question. And then that starts a, a dam breaking and people come up and ask questions. So uh, I, I think the 30 minutes will start after my my next question, which is about, um, okay, good. <laughs> so yeah, let me ask my question first and then we'll, we'll start taking audience questions at the mic. Um, I think there was, the, you know, the whole talking about Jerry Brown and how, you know, he wanted to put uh, money for affordable housing on the table, I guess 400 million or so, uh, if there was incentives to, for the city and county, local governments to change the way they do zoning ordinances, make it easier. And it seemed like there was just a lot of opposition. Unions were against environmental groups. It was just shot down. And this year he came up with a budget that didn't have the money in there. He said, you're going to have to change the way it's done on the city and, and county level. The state can't do it for you. But also I hear for things to happen, it, it takes um, bills in the legislature, things that can get passed. And I did ask a few senators, like Tony Atkins from San Diego, this is a big issue, but I think there's something going on tonight where a lot of the state legislators were, were busy or maybe they're just not too busy for me. But in any case, I wanted to see, I, I took a look at some of the bills that were going through Assembly and Senate. And I was curious to see which ones have the most promise. Like, which ones are you looking at that you think, uh, this has the potential to work. It would be great if this one worked. Um, but I guess I'm looking at the ones that have the most likely to pass. And if they do, what that could mean, if anything, for all of what you do. Are there any ones that, in particular, you're like rooting for? So I'm opening this up to all panelists. Who who wants to take that? So, Rachel. Um, okay. I'm, Rachel's I'm all first. Excited. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Rachel's excited. I'm, I'm really excited <laughs> about some of the bills, um, the pending legislation right now that would support um, more housing development and um, and also prevent more of this downzoning of uh, multifamily properties. So there is a lot of exciting legislation, and um, but I don't know how we're going to get the governor to sign bills even if they do get um, past the um, legislature. So one of them is um, Assembly Bill 71, and this would expand. Remember I talked about the low-income housing tax credit? Well, there's a federal tax credit and a state uh, tax credit that uh, produces revenue for affordable housing development. And the way we'd expand the tax credit, since the governor does not want to take money from the general funds, is we would eliminate a portion of the biggest housing subsidy. What is that, the biggest housing subsidy? It's the mortgage tax deduction on homeowners. 
So that's the biggest housing subsidy in this country and in the state of California is the mortgage tax deduction. And it primarily benefits, if you look at the bulk of the money that's, um, that is deducted, it's from very wealthy homeowners. And so one of the things is that uh, we want to get rid of the housing tax, the, the mortgage tax deduction for second homes, because that does just ben primarily benefit the very, very wealthy. It wouldn't stop them from buying homes either, because just that tax break they get doesn't stop them from buying, it wouldn't stop them from buying those second homes. So it wouldn't really have a detrimental effect on the economy. But why should? we the taxpayers forgo getting that tax revenue from wealthy people on their second homes when people go without a roof over their head. Doesn't matter. So, so that's the, probably the biggest one I'm rooting for because it makes so much sense. And which one is that again? That's, that's, so that's Assembly Bill 71. Assembly Bill 71. Yeah, and then the other one hey, is- Hey, Rachel, um, real, real quick on that. I think it's like for the, sec the, the second homeowner the, or vacation home, I think I heard somewhere it's like a $2,000 a year difference like if we cut that tax break it's only going to cost a family that can own a second home you know it's going to be less than a two or right around a two thousand twenty five hundred dollar a year tax deduction for these folks so it's not like a huge make or break for these wealthy individuals it's very insignificant if we get away if we do that so right so it, it, it's a it's it's not a big deal for the wealthy, but produces a lot of money for affordable housing. And then the second bill that um, I'm excited about, but I don't I don't know that the governor is going to sign is Senate Bill Two, and that's to create a permanent source of uh, revenue to build affordable housing. And um, you know enough of the bonds. The thing about the bonds is it's a temporary. So you the voters have been very generous whenever uh, affordable housing comes on the ballot. And you're to vote um, for a bond measure to support housing for the homeless, for first-time home buyers, for the disabled, for seniors. You, you do that. People in California are very generous and they vote for that, but it only lasts like five years. And then we have another five, ten years we're waiting for the next pot of funds and we don't build and then we get in this situation we're in today. And so a permanent source is what we need, not dependent on constant um, voter approvals, and so what this is is a fee on uh, recorded documents. So, so when um, someone goes to record a document at the re uh, county recorder's office, uh, there would be like a $75 fee, and that money would go into a pot for affordable housing. So, um, so those are two I'm um, encouraging. You're yep. For? yep, write your uh, write your legislation. And that that one could raise somewhere between 250 to 300 million dollars a year to build more affordable homes. It'll be capped at a certain amount that a that someone would have to pay like 225 dollars uh, maximum that you would end up paying on this recordation fee, and it would exempt homes uh, property sales as well. So I mean it's it's going to be huge to get something like that passed and to have this recurring source is really going to benefit our movement in general. Melissa what do you have to say? So I'm not going to comment on the individual bills um, but there's a couple things I want to say about this is one it is 
it is, like Rachel said, extremely exciting. This is the first time in my career that I've seen housing at such a forefront in the minds of the legislatures and even the governor. This is the first time this year the governor actually laid out five housing principles that he would like to see in these legislations. Now, I can only remember four, but um, the ones that he did say were, you know, he wants to see, you know, he, he really wants to see that localities are, you know, doing what they can do in order to streamline and reduce costs in order to get housing approved before he really wants to attach some money to anything. And that's, you kind of saw that last year with the buy right bill. But then he also wants to find ways to lower the cost of construction. Um, and at HCD, you know, we're doing that, uh, we're looking at all of the way that, that we have our programs and if we can reduce the costs there. But he really wants to see that. Um, he doesn't, uh, he actually did not say he didn't want a permanent source bill. Um, he, he basically said, looking for a ongoing source of revenue as long as it doesn't impact the general fund. Remember, with housing, we're competing with a lot of different priorities. So that's one of the key, one of the key ones. And then enforcement. So it, it was really critical to increase enforcement. Now, why is this exciting to me? Because these principles were laid out in the statewide housing assessment. So they mimic what is in California's draft plan. Um, for addressing the homeless, or I'm sorry, the, the housing crisis. So there is solutions, we just kind of have to have the political will in order to find them. Sonia? Yeah, we're also really excited about AB 71. And AB 71, that's, this is where, where we're taking away uh, the tax deduction uh, for mortgage interest when you have a second home. Seems like it should be a slam dunk, right? Because who's really gonna go to bat for people who have more than one home? Um, but it needs two-thirds in the Assembly, and I guess in the Senate, too. So it is actually worth telling your friends in other parts of California to send an email. Um, also, obviously, AB 678, that would make my nonprofit's job way easier um, doing enforcement. And SB 35, which would actually make my nonprofit's job so easy because it would no longer be necessary because SB 35 would bring, would, would force localities to create a ministerial, aka buy right process um, for zoning compliant uh, proposals. If you guys are excited about mortgage income tax deduction reform, there's actually a federal bill H.R. 948, write that one down, um, because um, to, to lower the, the amount, the maximum amount of a mortgage that would get um, the income tax deduction from a million dollars to half a million dollars. So uh, nationwide, this would only affect 6% of homeowners, but almost all of them are in California. <laughs> That's that right. So it's great. It was introduced by a Democrat. It really could pass on the federal level if sort of Republicans are really serious about really sticking it to coastal liberals because this <laughs> would do that. You know, all these people in San Francisco that are like, I'm middle class. I mean, literally the median house price in San Francisco is a million dollars. And it, it would actually change things in San Francisco because there's a lot of people that are like riding on that line. Like, should I rent? 
Should I buy? What are my tax, you know, advantages? And if they're, if the amount that they got to deduct, you know, if it went down, they, they would not buy. They, I mean, I don't know, maybe it'd be worse for rentals, but I think that would be a great thing if it could pass. It would raise money for the federal government. And that's something that our representatives in California it will really be worth it to, to get on top of them and try to get them to co-sponsor it. It's looking for co-sponsors in um, the House of Representatives. So if you can email your House of Representatives and say, HR 948, please co-sponsor it, that would be really meaningful because I think in California, our reps are going to be inclined uh, to not participate with it. And and here in, in California, I'm, I'm just curious, there is a... Com uh, committee, a, a housing committee on the Senate or Assembly or Joint. Is it worth if you are interested in these bills and you want to, you know, get them passed? Do you instead of just and what I'm going to do is I'm going to research these bills and put them on the website so that there is a list of what's going through. Um, but is it worth it just to go to the committee and say, you know, I really want to support this bill or please look at this bill? How do you, as a individual? You know, so, show your report. Support. So there's, if you go to the website for Housing California, um, that's a really great website. They're kind of our lobbyists for sane housing policy, and they will list the um, the key bills that we think we have a chance on. They'll list all the housing bills, but they'll they really work on and give sample letters, and you can get you know text messages and emails telling you um, when to show up at, if you can show up at a hearing or write letters. If you're part of organization or you're an employer or have an employer that wants to help make more workforce housing, they can um, send in letters of support. So Housing California is a really great um, organization to be um, plugged into. Daryl? Yeah, and just to build off that, it's not just for us here in the Sacramento region, which is one of the more progressive areas. Uh, when it comes to this type of uh, activity. It's about talking to your friends and relatives in other parts of the state and getting them to understand the importance of this, especially throughout the San Joaquin Valley from Stockton down to Bakersfield. It's those legislators that we really need to tweak their minds as to understand the importance. You know, you have you know, these folks who are uh, Democrat by name only right, that they are very conservative and come from a very conservative region. Those are the targets when we talk about these statewide bills. Those are the folks that we really need to push. So yes, please write a letter to your local assembly member and to your, your Senate reg, uh, representative, but also any of your friends and family that you have throughout the San Joaquin Valley. Make sure that they understand the importance of contacting their representatives as well, because those are the folks we really need to tweak the minds of. So I saw a whole bunch of people starting to line up around here and want to ask questions. So who's who's first up? Okay. Oh, great. Thank you. Hi. I'm really happy that this panel is together. This is a great evening. I'm glad that all of you are here. Um, I just, uh, you know, my, the nature of my question originally changed. First of all, I'd like to welcome you all to Oak Park. I think that it shares a lot of similarity to the story that, um, Daniel, that you shared with us about West Oakland, um, this area is a uh, neighborhood that has gone through a lot of those similar changes. Um, there are very low number of apartments here. It's mostly single family homes, but it's been a traditionally redlined area. So it's one of those quickly changing markets and things are rapidly changing around here. 
Um, I just wanted to say that um, I have heard some really great ideas about um, state policies and things that we can do at the state level, but I know that we've got two experts here on the local scene, and I just wanted to ask, um, what are some things that folks can look out for in the future that we can do here? Like, we've had a more progressive ordinance that would have gotten more done, but it's amazing, you know, Daryl, you said that, you know, that there are some dinos, you know, uh, but I think it seems that almost all of our politicians, they become dinos whenever it comes to the housing market. They just kind of become, it just becomes the land of the dinosaurs. So how do we, as you know, those that want healthy communities, fight back against some of that? Uh, well, thank you very much, Russell. Rachel. Yeah, appreciate, appreciate that question. You know, uh, the city and county of Sacramento used to have some of the most progressive affordable housing programs, uh, policies in place. And they were just revised over the last uh, three and four years uh, to where you moved away from requiring market rate developers to include a certain percentage of their development uh, affordable. Uh, whether or not that was through a major contribution to an affordable housing trust fund or actually having to build the homes themselves uh, in order to, to meet their requirements. We've now moved into more of a voluntary type program where developers can still build an affordable home and get credit for that to meet the policy, but more likely than not, they're going to pay a very, very small fee on this, you know, on their market rate development that then will go into a trust fund, which is definitely needed. But the fee is so small that we're not seeing enough money being cobbled together to where folks like Rachel can find the financing she needs to build more affordable homes in, in order to meet the, the need that the market is creating. So that is, a, you know, that, that was huge. Um, it's something that definitely needs to be revised um, and I think is, you know, that some of the elected officials are starting to realize that, whoops, maybe we did make a mistake a few years ago. We're not seeing the type of benefits coming back that we, we thought we were going to see. There could potentially be an opportunity to reopen that. Um, but we're keeping our eyes out. We're trying to, you know, fill the political environment out there to see when the time is right to come back and, and revise these policies. It's definitely something that the Housing Alliance is, you know, very interested in. The Housing Alliance played a very influential role back in the day, 15 years ago, at getting these progressive policies passed. And it, very, it was very hurtful for some of our longtime members and board members who had been, you know, key to getting those policies passed to see that they were revised and that we didn't have a whole lot of control at during those revisions but I think things are starting to come back around that we're starting to get the community support that we need and some of the elected officials in place that are starting to understand this uh, but there are also other pressing needs that are really needed to, to be addressed today and that's the homelessness issue and the lack of funding that is available to create more homes and so that's really where a lot of our priorities lie at the moment. Thank you. Next question. Hi. Um, I'm not very optimistic about the state of California right now. Um, I used to live in San Francisco for many years, and I moved out of San Francisco and could never, ever move back there. And I lived comfortably on a 
medium income in San Francisco. And, and to think an entire city that I used to call my home would be closed off to me forever again is a really sad thing. And I know what's happened to the artist community in San Francisco. And I work with artists here in Sacramento. And I feel like the same thing could happen here in Sacramento, that artists don't make the kinds of salaries or fees that make housing of any kind affordable to them. Um, but I guess my question is broader in terms of what's affordable, and, and it's a relative term. And I read some research that said throughout our history, um, people paid about 25 to 30% of their income to their housing. And now it's pretty common that people pay 50%, and obviously in certain areas, sometimes more than 50%. So is that clock ever going to get turned back? Can we ever? change that model so that people can afford to live and things like the economic crisis don't just you know cut people's legs off i guess okay let's start with uh, melissa melissa melinda, melinda i'm sorry melinda <laughs> melinda so the definition of affordability is still 30 percent of your income being paid towards your rent now that includes your housing costs as well um, utilities, et cetera. People who are, and we the, the term that we use for that to measure that is called rent burdened. Now a lot, we have over 50% uh, of our renters in California meet that threshold of rent burdened. Over 30% of our renters meet what we call severely rent burdened, which is that 50% mark. At that point, as people who are facing that realize is that they have to make extraordinarily tough choices, such as, you know, do I fix my car? Do I put McDonald's on the table or fresh fruits and vegetables? Do I, you know, do I pay for my medicine this month? You know, these choices are life and death choices. We're not just talking about disposable incomes for a latte anymore. So I think that that is a very real thing. And um, that is, I think, what, when we talk about making sure that there's enough affordable homes is, is we're trying to turn back that clock on how many of those, of those renters are paying at that 50% level. To make matters worse, if you look at the lower incomes, like extremely low income, 80% of our extremely low income families in California pay over half of their income towards rent. 80%. So it's a real issue. And so that's generally what we talk about when we talk about affordability is kind of keep those numbers in mind, 30% and 50%. Sonia? Thanks. Yeah, uh, ho uh, housing costs are always moving. So I, I want to have an optimistic thing. Um, so not just over the time span of decades, but over really the time span of five to eight years. An amazing conversation yesterday. I know this is just an anecdote, but a friend of mine said he just got a job in Oakland where he had been living for a little while and, you know, he had to move because of whatever his uh, unrelated to getting the job. And he was about to move back to San Francisco because he said, oh, the housing, housing option, there's so many more housing options in San Francisco right now than Oakland which blew my mind, and his too, as he said it. Um, but we did just add 3,500 units, homes, sorry, in San Francisco, and normally the average in San Francisco is like 1,400. So even one year with that many all of a sudden just dumped onto the market, like sends a little bit of a jiggle through the whole situation. Um, and then also, of course, every 
five or 10 years or something, we have a, we have a crash. So all of this stuff is always moving all the time and is like very disparate for different people. And we do have a demographic trend, right? Like the boomers really were a huge generation. And I mean, part of my job is to encourage people to be building housing all the time. But the reality is that in 20 years, things are going to get better because the fact is there's a lot of people 60 and over who are living one or two people in four bedroom houses and in the next two or three decades like they're just not going to be living in those houses anymore so demograph the demographics are going to change and they're going to affect what our situation is i really do think that one of the sources of our housing shortage which a lot there hasn't been a lot of research on is the fact that um, baby boomers are living longer, healthier, and they're staying in the homes that they raised their kids in, I think, much longer than previous generations did. Uh, so that's, true. yeah. Oh, it is true? Okay, good. Yeah, that's true. And a lot of it has to do with they can't, there's not another place for them to go afterwards. And the tax benefits that they get for being in their homes through Proposition 13, it's way more expensive if they move because they can't. In, in some counties, you can if you're within the county, but for the most part, you can't take that tax benefit with you. So it's way more expensive even if they sell their homes. They can't move. That's like the third rail, right? Talking about Proposition 13 and changing that right now. Okay. We'll save that for another time, but okay, next question. Um, this is for the gentleman from CADA. Uh, talk about the wall, will you? What was the success there? Because it really is a great thing, and how can we reproduce that? Why doesn't it happen more often? Do you have more walls in the making? Uh, I have a couple sites I'd love to build more walls. Uh, you know, that project was uh, deeply, deeply subsidized. And it was, it's everything an infill development, you know, catchphrase could encompass is historic rehab, it was brownfields, it's transit development, it's infill, mixed use, mixed to income. Uh, it had everything, artist preference, housing. Um, it's a, it's a, it was a very difficult project uh, to finance, although it came together very quickly. Um, I think because everybody got behind it. Um, I would love to, to, to try to find another project in our area to continue kind of the cultural district that we're creating in, in the R Street area. Um, I tell you, there's a four-year waiting list to get into the wall right now. Um, and it probably grows. It, it could grow. I think they've cut it off, the waiting list at this point. But, uh, you know, every day, every week, there's more and more people that show up and say, I want to live here. I'm an artist. I'd love to, to, to be a part of it. Um, the success is just that people just need housing. I mean, it's just we don't have enough of it, whether it's young artists, artists in general, whether it's uh, you know uh, the boomers who apparently want to downsize but don't have anywhere to go. We can't, you know, they want to go maybe live in the city of Sacramento in downtown, um, but there's not enough of that type of housing being built uh, some, somewhere they can downsize. Um, you know, as soon as we came out of the recession, a project that had been failing for the most part, which was Tapestry Square, all of a sudden came to life and sold out within you know, a year. Um, had been sitting there for four or five years and barely selling anything and finally came to life because people started to you know, come out of the recession and they had played. But there was mostly the people who lived there, and granted those are larger townhomes and typically get built downtown, but they were mostly boomers that were moving there because it was kind of moving from the suburbs and kind of getting, you know, some more, they had space, you know, these we're talking 1,800 to 3,000 square foot homes. Um, so um, I'm thinking about trying to find another artist preference housing site 
in and around our area. I would love to build another one. But production is just one piece of the puzzle, right? I mean, yes, we need to build more homes. We need to build more affordable homes. But it's incumbent upon local jurisdictions to make sure that the right policies are in place, that the right programs in are in place, and that there's funding available to help meet that need. So it's, I mean, production is one thing, but all these other pieces of that puzzle need to fall in nice and evenly so that we can see inclusive, healthy communities are being developed um, in, in an in overall, not just build more homes. And, um, and so, so Sacramento-specific, County of Sacramento, City of Sacramento, particularly after the wall was built and people moved in, has anything changed in terms of, I don't know, the support that you need to get or want to get from the, the city, the county? Um, are they on board or is it more complicated? I'm just curious about that local support for Mutual, for CADA. Is it there or? <laughs> Rachel? <Thanks. laughs> um, so I think there is consensus that we have a housing crisis for the missing middle, right? Um, middle income people that are no longer able to afford rent, especially for new new apartments that are being built or new homes, um, as well as a major crisis for low-income and extremely low-income people, low-wage workers, low-income seniors, et cetera. So there is, I think there is a consensus with our elected officials at the city and county and other cities in the county um, that there's a crisis. Um, but there is not a consensus about what we do about it just like there isn't a consensus at the state level. So, you know, what, um, what Daryl's talking about is there needs to be a policy that um, developers of half million dollar homes, a million dollar homes, or, you know, 300,000 a month apartments, that they put money aside or apartments aside or homes aside to be affordable to working people, to low income people, to people on low wages. And we've kind of lost, we've, that, that policy we used to have has been weakened over time. And um, we need more funds where the state and feds aren't coming through with funding. We need some local funds. We can't leverage, even when the state tax credit market comes back, we can't leverage those funds without showing we have local financial support and without a real strong housing trust fund here and a policy that produces revenue for affordable housing at the local level, at the city and county, we can't leverage the state and federal funds once they come back. So um, there's no people, I, I think our electeds aren't hearing from their constituents that this is important to them. And if they don't hear about it, you know, if they hear about the potholes and, you know, whatever, and they're not hearing that, you know, the mayor, we're lucky we have a mayor who understands there's a, cri a homeless crisis. So he wants to work for that, right? But he want, he's not thinking about enough about creating the stock of affordable housing. Building market rate housing won't help low wage workers. It won't help homeless people. It won't help the poor. Um, it won't help our grandparents who are existing off of Social Security. New housing being built is, how, how much does it cost down the, the new homes, uh, the new apartments on 16th, 3,000 3, a month, 4,000? Well, again, it's, it's, you know, it's the only way you can get those type of projects in downtown to pencil, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, they're going for 250 a square foot. 
probably on and on average. Right. Which is, and you know, but is this new high two dollars and fifty? Yeah. So that's a that's two thousand five hundred dollars for a thousand square feet. So I mean, if you're looking for public money out of the general fund to spend on uh, subsidizing housing, I mean, if you increase like the raw number of middle and high income people who can live in your city. Don't you have more taxpayers, so more money into the general fund? So it just the trickle down theory. That's just, not trickle down. It, That's it's, straight it's up high, high high income people producing revenue for low income affordable housing. It just it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked in this country. It hasn't worked. It in worked the city. in Austin, in Seattle. I mean, I come from a place that was starving for taxpayers, so I know what it's like to not have taxpayers. That's for sure. And you definitely don't have general fund money. Well, look, so there was a surplus this last year with the city of Sacramento for their, uh, their general fund. And out of that, um, the city, for the first time, I can't tell you how long, has proposed to spend $5 million of that surplus to address this homelessness issue. So that's and an that's example of it working. Niched, but it's not necessarily because of that, because in good times there, there might be a surplus, but in bad times there's going to be a deficit. And it's always these uh, you know, programs that addresses low-income individuals that are the first to get cut. Even with this new federal administration, just recently throughout the whole country, from what I understand, housing authorities are going to receive a 5% uh, reduction in the amount of money that they're going to receive this year alone. And that's without other cuts. So we're talking about like $5 million that the local housing authority is going to lose. But yet there's $5 million getting made up, so it's kind of like a, a wash there. But what's being proposed through the new administration and through HUD cutbacks is $6 billion reduction nationally, okay? $6 billion is being, it could potentially is what we can see as being cuts to our federal housing programs. And panelists, and I that's just- gonna be huge. Okay, and I, and I wanna be mindful of time because we're getting over eight o'clock and I think we've got three more questions. So let's, let's take the next one. Sure. Um- my name's Kevin, so I had a quick question, but first I wanted to do a quick plug too for everyone who's here in the audience. Um, one of the discussions that came out of the last meeting that we had with California Groton uh, Breakers was that some of us got together and we decided we wanted to make a group pretty similar to what Sonia's making in San Francisco oh. or Sacramento. So you're talking about that last, uh, the first one right. on, oh cool, right. okay. I'll... So maybe the first group out of the California Groton Breakers. So uh, if that message, resonates with you, maybe you guys could uh, talk to me after we're done with questions and I'd be happy to. So sack barf. Yeah, we're trying to get Sacramento to barf as well. That's, uh, that's our goal. Um, so so uh, my question is, uh, Daniel, you looked at economies all over the world and decided that we were one of the most unaffordable in terms of housing. But in that search, did you also find an example of an economy that was able to overcome an affordable housing problem without going through a recession or an economic problem? And what were some of the solutions that they used in that particular locality? Yeah, that's a great question. So we did. Um, and it comes down to creating the right regulatory and financial frameworks that allow developers to develop to meet market needs. So. Pure and simple. <laughs> Pure and simple. Yeah, I mean, we, we, the problem here is undersupply, 
right? There is strong demand. People like living in California. Our economy is strong. Our population is growing. On average, income is rising. That creates rising demand for housing, and we underproduce, right? And that's primary. That's a, a market failure in our view, due to regulations that are in place, largely, as well as um, other things that drive up the cost of production. So things that work really well are public-private partnerships around land, the kind of innovative zoning, form-based zoning that my other panelists mentioned, um, a whole slew of either financing tools or land use tools that can uh, kind of create fertile ground for housing growth. So wait, where? Is that what you're asking? So New York City has done a far better job of producing than San Francisco or Los Angeles, for example. Um, Hong Kong has some really innovative models um, for harnessing the land around transit stops um, and allowing kind of public agencies to share uh, the revenue from housing growth. Singapore has like a really innovative public housing authority that I think we'd see them as one of probably the best, uh, you know, most efficient multifamily developers in the world as a public agency. Is there anywhere in California that is... <laughs> yeah, Todd yeah. laughed. Sure. Todd laughed. Sure. So, sure. so the question was, was about, I think, global examples. Yeah, we've absolutely seen some stellar examples here in California. Um, here in the Central Valley, uh, I think Fresno has a great example yeah, of a, Fresno. a really impressive general plan update and development code that rewrote the way they approach uh, mixed use and urban development. Redwood City has seen a lot of growth uh, right after the recession due to uh, the zoning changes they put in place. Lots of examples here, places to look. Fresno was actually sued over their housing element, and so uh, San Francisco. We're very, and that's what helps create some of this progressive housing policy, like in a conservative area like Fresno, where things they don't care about urban growth boundaries and sprawl and all of that. So again, I think it goes to show that you do have to have the program and policies in place that will create an equitable environment through development. Next question. Um, Ann Garrity, and I'm with Washington House Co-Housing. We're developing a new co-housing project in West Sacramento, and most of it is going to be unaffordable, although we're trying to create some very small units that will be somewhat affordable. But what I, my question is, is, is something that I think co-housing addresses more than any other policies I've seen, and I'd love to see more of your work, but the integration of other needs. For example, with co-housing, and especially where we're located, which will be one block from the river and downtown, uh, people will be able to not have a car so they can cut their transportation costs. They're going to have better health because they're going to be interacting with other people. They can help each other. My question is, what kind of support is available to support all incomes in creating self-generated housing where we work with developers and we are the market that then supports in city council meetings. We're here, we're gonna be the residents. The whole, the whole thing, it seems like right now, housing is so much a consumer thing as opposed to a community development kind of thing. So any thoughts you have on that? Thank you. So that's where 
having the right policies in place is really, really critical, and being engaged at the right times. So one of the things that we've been seeing throughout California is that citizens do not get engaged until there's an actual development being proposed. That's way too late. You need to be engaged during the planning process, during the housing element process, during the processes in which the, which the localities make that determination on what policies and, that they want to put in place. So what you're talking about is actually there's been a really big groundswell movement to do a little bit more of this like neighborhood community-based planning where you have um, you know, the, the neighborhoods um, inputting in the kinds of development they would like to see. But this happens way before there's even a development proposal. The idea is that by, develop, by determining what kind of development you would like to see, then what developers want, and correct me if I'm wrong, is certainty. They want to know, what do I need to do? How much, you know, what are the rules? How, you know, and then I'll build the box the way that you need me to build the box. But if we don't know what, how we're going to build a box, then that's where we come into a big trouble. So my suggestion to you, and in order to even make any kind of changes to policies and in the way things work, is that you need to be involved at all the stages of the, of the process. Another state uh, law that's being proposed right now is AB 1397, which goes along with uh, what Melinda's talking about, and that's during the housing element process, that local governments are actually identifying adequate sites within their housing element that could actually produce affordable homes for individuals. There are jurisdictions who are notorious for identifying the same single family home downtown that you know has been in their housing element for the last 20, 30 years as a potential site to be redeveloped into more affordable homes, but yet it's not gonna happen because it's owned by a single homeowner. There are these laws that are being proposed that are going to help this planning process to force the jurisdictions to actually identify sites where there can be affordable homes actually built on. Welcome to the housing wonk world. <laughs> Next question. Hi, my name is Jill McGee. I'm with the Oak Park Neighborhood Association, and I'm actually really interested in what you mentioned as the third rail of Prop 13, because I think people sort of get scared and run away as soon as you say Prop 13. But one of the concerns that residents of this neighborhood have had is we have a lot of people who are elderly, who maybe have owned their home for 20 years, and now their home is being auctioned out from under them because they can't pay their property taxes. So I wonder, in the context of affordable housing, does an affordable housing complex itself also have to pay property taxes? And if we were to make changes to Prop 13, how would that impact affordable housing? Because I hear some people saying that if we changed Prop 13, we could release all this money that would be available to build affordable housing. But what about people like my mother, who if you were to change the way she pays her property taxes, she would be homeless tomorrow. How can we address that with our neighbors here in Oak Park? Rachel. So in, in California, um, there is a law that if a nonprofit like mutual housing owns affordable housing, 
and it's regulated affordable housing. So in other words, the city or state puts a regulatory agreement on it saying it, it has to be rented to low-income people um, and you can't raise the rents more than they can afford and all that, um, then they don't pay, we don't pay property taxes on those parcels. Right, uh, those are regulated, uh, restricted affordable housing, the kind mutual housing builds and operates. So um, for your grandmother though, that's right. We call that, it's just affordable um, because she's lived in it for so long, she's owned it for so long, she's maybe paid her mortgage. So, um, and, and I don't, I don't know what, um, if we change, so the, so what a movement, the, there's a movement, there's a lot of support for low property taxes in California, so I don't see that going away anytime soon. There is a movement, though, to um, undo uh, Prop 13 on uh, commercial buildings. So why, why, what are we worried about commercial buildings for? <laughs> Um, you know, for uh, especially for larger commercial buildings, then and they can absorb that because lease rates go up. Um, so there is a movement to kind of undo that and have uh, on on um, commercial buildings the property taxes and bring in revenue to the state in that way. And I don't know if anyone knows more about that. Sodia, you wanted to add something? Yeah. So what other states do? Um, because the situation, of course, older people they stop working, fixed incomes you know, property tax rise around them, it's not really fair. Um, what other states do is they have a, like kind of a literal grandfathering clause. So they have an income test if you're old. And California is unique in somehow never thinking of that. Every single time somebody talks about reforming Prop 13, we act like there's no possible way to have any kind of uh, exception, you know, for older people. Because we don't want to displace older people. It's, it's terrifying for them. I mean, that said, it is not really right for high-income people, um, you know, who are maybe like 50, 55, still working, you know, still living in these houses where they're paying like very un unusually low uh, property taxes. And it destroys all kinds of things. It's destroying our schools. I mean, in Palo Alto, where the, where the houses are $2 million, um, they had, you know, road surface collapse. Why are the roads bad in Palo Alto? It's, a, it's one of the richest places in the world. Prop 13 is the answer. Yep, and, and going back to what Rachel was saying, you know, the, the discussions around Prop 13 reform right now is most, mostly about commercial properties. It's not necessarily to do with residential properties and, and putting, burdening our grandparents you know, and other folks who've benefited from living where they have for decades. But this is about leveling the pain, pay, uh, leveling the paying field, where commercial folks are starting to pay their fair share of property taxes, which haven't increased, you know, in, you know, since Prop 13 was enacted. So it's not necessarily hitting mom and pop and grandma and grandpa. It's about hitting, you know, these big corporations who've benefited from major tax breaks since Prop 13 has been enacted. And that's where the conversation's being lost. And so I would really, you know, push folks to look into the, some of this Prop 13 reform that's out there, because it could be a huge windfall for California if we are able to change that tax code just to, to think about commercial uh, property taxes. And, um, you know, how does this affect affordability and the supply problem? Well, one of the major issues is that because 
of Prop Proposition 13, it's become unaffordable for cities to approve housing. You're not going to get the tax revenue you're going to get from big box stores and a lot of commercial. And so there's this incentive to approve projects that's going to increase the tax revenue so you have enough money to pay for your police and your fire and your library and everything else that citizens expect a good education um, over residential uses which don't generate that much tax revenue. So that's one of the kind of um, disincentives we have and what has led of to some of our supply issues. Um, you know, even going back to um, what Sonia said about, you know, well, if we get more tax folks in, does that help? Well, we're in a situation across California where redevelopment didn't necessarily go away. What it did is that the, the governor said, you know, except for the stuff that goes to the schools, everything goes back to the cities, and then cities get to decide what they want to do with that money. Well, where do you think that money went to? It went into budgets that were hurting throughout California because there's not enough money to play, pay for anything at a city or county level. So without that requirement that cities used to have to set aside a certain portion of their revenue to, to go to housing, cities aren't doing that um, because they have other things that they need to, to, to address as well. So take the last audience question and then I have a quick one to wrap it up. So, Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Rachel Bardis. I am Bardis Holmes, the developer for the mill at Broadway, just down the street. And I have sort of a few thoughts, but also just concerns that I would like to address as well with the group. Um, that we do have a missing middle. There's that sort of middle bracket, and we're trying to address it at the mill. The hardest part of that, of course, comes down to the very basic facts of do we have to put in all our infrastructure? What's the cost for us to have to put in that infrastructure? And when do we get that money back, if ever, based on the way developments are approved over time? Um, do we have the means to have the financing in place to put that infrastructure in? Do we have the possibility of having to you know, pay into affordable housing? And at what cost is that? And so for us to then and, then, and then what's the price of the land, of course? You put all of those factors together, and you come down to the very same fact of, can we even make it pencil? And, and you're saying, can we make it pencil when we have opportunities to have other financing mechanisms in place, as opposed to market rate housing? We don't. We don't go for that. So then, and then yet, we have so many burdens to overcome to be able to put that in place. And I'm not saying that that is anything less than how do we put affordable housing in place for our workers. You know, and, and so then there's this bill, AB199, that's coming into place. AB 199 makes it to where there is no more housing. It's 47% increase in cost to housing. No, you can't afford to build anymore. And as it is, we can barely afford to build because there's a lack of trades that are still here at this point. We had such an obliteration in our market that now we're trying to get to the point where we're building again. And, and we're trying to find the workers. And they don't exist. They've gone. They've, they've, and the costs go up. So now, what I used to be able to pay price per foot, the cost per foot, has now almost doubled in price, and yet we're still trying to find that middle marketplace for, for people in our market to be, able to, to be able to afford. And then, like I said, now we have AB199, which is a major threat to the industry coming up. And it's just, you know, I, I love what I do. I love what I do. 
I love providing housing and community and, and to be able to afford people the opportunity to have their own home. And it just continues to become more and more of a challenge without subsidies and without help. So I just, I'm throwing it out there to say, what, do, what can we do as developers and what can everybody do to try and make it to where we can build? Because at this point, especially with things like AB 199 and other, and other factors coming in, there is no opportunity to build. Uh, the hearing, the first hearing for AB 199 is on Wednesday at 1.30. So are you gonna go? That's it, man. <laughs> you already knew. Yeah. Who, whose bill is that? Who's sponsoring that? Chu. C-H-U. Chu. That was the weirdest meeting I ever had. He insisted the entire time. He's like, this only applies to redevelopment projects. And I was like, well, as written, it applies to everything. And he's like, no, no. And I've never had that experience before where someone is just straight up just not reading. It was so weird. I don't know what's going to happen with that. It, it is crazy. And worse, not willing to talk about it. Not willing to talk about it. Uh, I'm going to ask the audience, are you okay with one? Okay, one big question. Okay, this is going to be the best question of the oh, night. Man, okay. This is big. Um, to your point, this is... AB 199 is a huge deal. There's a lot of commonality. Can I think. you explain? Can we Absolutely. give some summary of It's 199? a prevailing wage bill that essentially would push prevailing wage to residential construction. So it's between, in Sacramento, $75,000 to $90,000 per home is what it would cost. The unions are, are encouraging the assemblymen to push this bill. Um, it is a absolute, talk about third rail, it's a third rail to development across the board. And when people, um, like our friend, former Mayor Kevin Johnson said 10,000 units in the core of Sacramento, um, over 6,000 of those were to be market rate. Dead, completely dead, would not happen. So this is something that a lot of people are just scratching their head about. Um, I think the assemblyman is, has very good intentions, but just is completely misguided. Um, Wednesday at 1.30 is the hearing. I know that this isn't necessarily the, the forum to push that, but it, but I, I hear so many people from different divergent backgrounds up on this panel, which was fantastic, talking about this issue. And um, the one thing that we have in common is to keep costs down and keep costs in place so that we can build collectively more homes. So um, again, if you can um, take a look at that bill, it's critically important to everything that everyone has said tonight. So thank you for your time. And thanks for not booing me off being the last questionnaire. Thanks, guys. <laughs> well, I I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the last question. I'm going to tie it into what Rachel and this gentleman asked. Because one of the other reports that I read just came out recently, the um, Legislative Analyst Office. I guess that's our, that's our version of the, the federal level. They look at bills, and they kind of give their take. So they had a report on housing development. It was pretty grim. Uh, I'm just kind of summarizing what they said. Uh, we, they basically said, we can give a few suggestions, but quote, the real improvement can only come with a major shift in how communities and their residents think about and value new housing. Such a change is unlikely to happen on its own. Convincing Californians necessitates difficult conversations that are led by elected officials and other community leaders interested in those goals. So unless Californians are convinced of the benefits of significantly more home building targeted at meeting housing demand at every income level, no state intervention is likely to make significant progress on addressing the state's housing challenges. So my question for the panelists, all of you, is what are your suggestions for getting people convinced and having them convince their local governments and elected officials to make that change? Sonia. Oh, hey. 
Yeah, so <laughs> um, get in touch and stay in touch with your council person or supervisor or both. And I'm really serious about that. You know, just take a minute and figure out what the email address is for your most immediate local representative and then get in the habit of emailing them about anything or nothing. Every time you read a newspaper article um, about something going on and you have an opinion, um, you might tweet about it or Facebook about it. But once you email your representative a couple times, your email will start to auto-guess who you're emailing. And you will be amazed how much attention your local rep pays to you because it's actually very rare to uh, have, you know, sort of somebody can you know continually in contact with them you know and it can be very encouraging um, everybody here has an address and so everybody here eventually will probably have somebody propose building something near them and yes absolutely if the proposal is to tear down existing housing or existing low-income housing really if, if the proposal is to tear down a single-family house then be really excited about it. If the proposal is to tear down existing multifamily affordable housing, fight it. But if the proposal is to tear down any other thing, even if you yourself are like, uh, I was emotionally attached to that store or that parking lot or that empty building or whatever, try to think bigger than your own immediate um, emotional reaction because the housing, like think about the people that would live in that housing and then ask yourself where they might live instead. So if it's new expensive housing, those high income people are probably gonna live somewhere else in your neighborhood. They're probably gonna live in an existing apartment or an existing house. You're not gonna like not have those people move in just cause you don't build housing for them. Um, what you are gonna have is those people displacing someone else. And so think through the whole thing. A lot of people oppose housing because they have like an immediate reaction and they don't really, you know, think a few steps down the line. Melissa. Um, okay, so LAO is, is very correct here. And um, we've set up a system in our country specifically where the primary wealth generating mechanism for the middle class is home ownership. Um, as a result, when you go to city council, and I go to a lot of city council meetings, it's one of my jobs, I get to go and be the bad guy and tell them what they, the state you know, requires of them. Um, you know, The people who show up are the folks who are very concerned about their nest egg, about you know, that kind of thing. What they don't hear from is people, nobody comes out if they don't not like the project, right? If, if, you, if you like the project or you don't care about it, you don't go to a city council meeting. You know, that's just why, you know, but those are the people that they need to hear from because they always hear from the people who don't want it. And that's who they're going to, to, to uh, address. Now, we had a very interesting question that, you, that we didn't talk about that kind of ties in here, which is about technology. Um, one of the things doing the statewide housing assessment I was able to do was go around California and just listen to people and listen to what people were saying. And one of the things that really kind of struck me was we do not use technology to reach out to the people who are most effective, affected by our housing shortage, which is the millennials, which is the folks who are coming out of college, which are the folks in their 20s and their 30s. They do, they're not going to read a newspaper and a notice in a newspaper to find out that there's going to be a development right next door, right? Or they're not going to get a mailer. They, they barely go to their mailbox, right? I don't go to my mailbox. Um, 
So we need to be looking at different ways and to reach out to the people who are really affected and get them involved and organized into coming to city council meetings and talking about why it's very important that development occur because they're only listening to those people who say no. Rachel? Yeah, I, I was gonna say, we've, uh, I've um, encountered a lot of opposition to multifamily housing and affordable multifamily housing, and a lot of it, there's an undercurrent of racism. And um, I, I would just say that, um, building on your statement, that I, I do have a lot of hope, as with many issues like LGBT rights, that when um, my generation, the baby booners, are really, you know, we're unable to get to the polls or we just die off. I do have a lot of hope in this younger generation that they're more open to diversity, um, that they've also been through this housing crisis themselves. And I think it is very, very difficult to get through to my generation, to baby boomers on this whole issue of having a diversity of housing types because um, there just is a lot of racism and classism out there and there it has been so hard to get over that. Um, and once we build the housing and everyone's living there and everyone's nice and everyone's just, you know, raising a family, everyone gets along and the neighbors stop their whining and complaining and, you know, <laughs> racist venom. But, you know, before it's built, and, and that's when you find out whether an elected official has a backbone and ethics and or they're just listening to whoever speaks loudest because they're concerned of getting elected again. But I just, I have a lot of hope for young people. Yeah. Gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. And, and to build off of what Rachel was just saying, you know, we're resilient creatures. You know, we are able to adapt and to deal with everything that the environment throws at us. And we're, we've thrived and, you know, created these communities that we live in today. You know, yeah, you might have a, a neighborhood that was built back in the 50s and you're used to it being a certain way and along comes a developer that wants to build a multifamily complex with, you know, a mix of affordable homes, have different income levels living here, people of different color and different cultures and backgrounds. And your gut reaction might be, eek, I don't want to see that change happen. But you know, we adapt very easily to these environments. And more times than not, when those developments come into your community, it creates a much healthier community. You know, we live and learn from one another on a daily basis. And to be able to learn a new culture, to learn how a new family lives and thrives in our society, that could pay dividends to you and your family in the long run. And so really to, you know, to become this um, a groundbreakers technology uh, term, a YIMBY, you know, is really going to benefit our communities in, in the long run. You know, you know, there are certain protections that need to be in place so that people aren't taken advantage of and communities aren't taken advantage of. Uh, but we def definitely need to be more supportive of making sure that the right equitable, sustainable growth is put into place so that we can all thrive and learn and live together and, and benefit our communities in general. Okay. Todd, we'll take the last word. Say a few last, okay. a couple of real quick things. Um, Cause you know, I used to work for the city of Sacramento and did the housing element update back way back in the day. I could get really wonky, but I'll let you other guys get really wonky. Cause 
it's a very complex issue. Housing is extremely complex. Um, the one thing we didn't touch on is, and maybe a little bit, is it's a regional issue here. We have a, it's not just the city of Sacramento, and affordable housing in particular, working on the housing element back in the day, and not knowing that some of these communities aren't doing their fair share of producing affordable housing. Um, we always look to the city, it seems like, the Sacramento to, to take that on, and I'd really love to see some of the other communities take that effort, knowing even in the county back, I think it was in the, I don't know if it was your project, Rachel, but there was a big fight a year last year about an affordable housing project out in the Arden, Carmichael area. Um, and, you know, it, we shouldn't have that kind of issue um, to build affordable housing in, the, in, in those areas. Um, the one thing we also didn't touch, touch on is the transportation component of making sure that we're building transportation systems for affordable housing because a lot of these fee people still need to get to work and a lot of times, as I think Rachel, you pointed out, they, they li have to live far away from their, their, their jobs to get to these places. So, um, you know, unfortunately our regional transit system um, is in dire straits, but um, you know, we, we need to think about that component um, to the housing crunch as well. Um, and last, I just want to say, Sonia, you're my new hero. Um, you're, like my you're like my urban hero now. I'm going to start following you. I hope you got like some Facebook, Twitter, or something so I could follow you. And I think what you're doing is awesome, and I'd love to see a, a similar type of organization um, sprout out here in Sacramento, because I think we need more organizations like that to push housing issues to the forefront, because um, it is going to be, I think, over the next 10 years, going to be you know, one of the issues of our time, so. Yeah, I think what I learned from reading about all this is uh, it can be state down, but a lot of the affordable housing is going to be from the bottom up, so individual collecting and getting together. So, so much that we didn't discuss, but obviously, as you all know, this is such a big topic, and it's going to affect so many of us. So thank you guys for hanging in there. Uh, I appreciate it. And I look forward to hearing you know, what other efforts come out of these meetings. And then I will put on the website and, and, and try to blast out the bills that are going through uh, Senate Assembly right now. And, and uh and see where they go and just so we're all you know keep aware of what's going on after the mics are turned off so thanks again everybody really appreciate it and um yeah i appreciate you guys coming in and you it's a really good discussion and it's going to keep on going so thanks again Thank you.